0: Thanks for pressing play. There is a fundamental, dare I say, seminal change in the category design of human beings. That is to say, the definition of what a human is has changed. You see, if you are over the age of 35, you are the last of a dying breed called native analogs. If you are 35 or younger, you are the first generation of human beings. To grow up fully integrated with the machines, in the cloud, with mobile, etc. Native digitals experience life in a digital first way and an analog way second. As a matter of fact, if you listen to native digitals talk, they talk Uh, when they refer to going out of the digital world, they use the term, the RL or RL for real life because their default position is DL, the digital life. So if you are under the age of 35 years old, you have come of age integrated with the machines, your smartphone and technology overall is like part of who you are as a person. And as a result, your digital first and analog second. Most people over 35, that is to say native analogs, don't get this. And most people overall are not ready for the fact that everything, and when I say everything, I mean everything about the way we live, work, and play is changing, moving from an analog category, an analog paradigm to a native digital world. This is a special two-part series that we're doing on native analogs versus native digitals. And today what you're about to hear is a Category Pirates uh, mini e-book read on this topic and uh, Category Pirates is our newsletter, and it's also now a series of books on Amazon about category creation and category design, and our goal is to provide you with a different lens on the world, to provide you with thinking about thinking to inform your thinking, and I also want to be clear, Category Pirates is a legendary creative endeavor with Eddie Yoon, Nicholas Cole, and myself, so what you're about to hear is me reading the work of all three of us. Now, i 'm doing this first here to set the frame to sort of get us on the same page about how profound this shift in a new kind of human being is. on our next episode, we have a guest named Hannah Grady Williams, and she is a Gen Zer aka Native Digital, who is a CEO Gen Z advisor slash whisperer. And she's the author of a new book called A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z, Insider Strategies to Empower Your Team. So she's coming up on our next episode. So why a two-part series on this topic? Because we believe around here that this is the most radical change in what it means to be human ever. We are at this inflection point now, the shift from analog to digital people. And this shift is and will, at an ever-increasing pace, change everything about the way we live, work, and play. And much to our shock, very few people are actually talking about it. So that's what we're going to do. This is Christopher Lockett. Follow your different Podcast magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And there are some podcast reviewers who call us overrated, not worth it and offensive. <laughs> Whatever you call us, I sure am stoked you're here. My friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first organic whole plant flax milk. And uh, you probably know flax is a superfood. And Malibu milk, I love it so much. Uh, I actually drink it every day. So check out Malibu MalibuMilkWithAY.com. It's great on smoothies. It's great with coffee. Uh, I have it in cereal all the time. Malibu MalibuMilkWithAY.com. And when you check out, type in discount code DIFFERENT15. That's DIFFERENT15 and you'll get a 15% discount. My friends at Socrates.ai are doing a very innovative thing in changing to a native digital workplace. Imagine being able to talk or text your own company and get an answer back instantaneously on any kind of an internal HR type question. Socrates.ai, because employee experience matters, especially in the digital world. And my friends at AtreNet, A-T-R-E dot have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out Atre.net today. And if you're looking at um, putting out a new website, they have a rapid relaunch program. So check it out at Atre.net on the internet. <laughs> now, hey-ho. Let's go. (music) Introduction. Do you know why the most well known and successful brands in the world falter? Do you know the precise moment a category king or queen loses control over their kingdom? When a new category arises, seemingly out of nowhere, the incumbent doesn't topple over because they were unaware of the new category queen. They fall because they dismissed what was happening right before their very eyes. It's not ignorance, it's arrogance, coupled with the gravitational pull of the way it is, because the people profiting in the present want things to stay the same. A- Keurig and K-Cups are a fad. That'll be a small niche. Cloud computing is nuts. Major enterprises will never give up their data centers until the niche category becomes the category. And what was once new becomes old. Chapter one. This is called category neglect. Category neglect doesn't come from people being stupid or lacking sufficient data and resources to spot the headwinds and tailwinds of the future. It comes from a refusal to acknowledge which direction the wind is really blowing. Craft beer, Greek yogurt, cloud computing, single serve coffee were all trends that could have been spotted and addressed five to seven years before they crossed over into the mainstream by Anheuser-Busch, General Mills slash IBM, Nestle, Nescafe, and so forth. These companies collectively spend nine figures on data to better understand consumer behavior. In its heyday, Anheuser-Busch alone spent over a billion dollars on sales and marketing. And back when P&G owned Folgers, an up-and-coming executive, went to his boss and told him about an interesting new coffee company out of Seattle called Starbucks. He suggested they look at acquiring them, but was told, son, we're not in the food service business. We build the most powerful consumer brands. We are the best marketers in the world. We got nothing to worry about. When this happens, incumbents and their employees and investors stand to lose billions in market capitalization. All because they chose contempt over curiosity, the way it is, over the way it could be. The Cautionary Tale of Timeshare Pirate Christopher remembers a story he was told about a timesharing company selling computer time and software packages for users called Timeshare. They were having an executive team strategy meeting. The company was based in Cupertino, California, and a debate ensued about the newly emerging personal computer category, and like most incumbents, drunk on the company's current day profits, the executives in the room dismissed it. They unanimously agreed personal computing was nothing to worry about. Simultaneously, through the windows of this exact meeting room where this discussion was happening... You could see the cranes across the street building Apple's new headquarters. Timeshare's leadership could not see the future being built, even though it was happening right in front of them. You can't make this stuff up. Netflix co-founders Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings famously experienced a similar moment when meeting with Blockbuster CEO John Antico in September 2000. Randolph and Hastings went into the meeting with a proposition for the two companies to join forces and ended up with a proposition for Blockbuster to acquire Netflix for $50 million. To which Antico, struggling not to laugh, said, the dot-com hysteria is completely overblown. He didn't just dismiss Netflix's point of view of the world. He was borderline insulted by it course, everybody knows how the Blockbuster versus Netflix case ended. In 2004, Blockbuster had 9,000 stores globally and was earning $5.9 billion in revenue. By 2005, the company had lost 75% of its market value. And in 2010, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. Game over. This happens because the gravitational pull is too strong. A company gets used to earning hundreds of millions or billions of dollars per year and thinks it can do no wrong. The gravitational pull of building a great business takes over and prevents these well-intentioned executives and entrepreneurs from objectively observing the future taking place and capitalizing as a result. They forget what originally made them successful was their ability to change the way it was to the way it is is, and that if they aren't careful, someone else can come along and change the way it is now. The company becomes deeply invested in the present, and anything that threatens the way it is now is dismissed. The problem with contempt in business is that it's emotional. It's not objective. When you have contempt, the data can scream in your face that a niche category is growing fast and you won't be able to hear it. You've enrolled yourself in the best brand will always win cult or worse, the best product will always win cult and become myopic. But contempt is also multidimensional and manifests in ways beyond just contempt for competitors. It's often contempt for customers, like when a company cuts costs by lowering quality, assuming their customers are too dumb to notice, or jam them into punitive contracts that trap them into buying. It's contempt for their suppliers, forcing ever-worsening payment terms on vendors. It is a sad statement when companies invest more in their procurement departments than in their product and category innovation. Your actions say, I know better than you. Until all of a sudden, you're done. Contempt weighs you down and makes it difficult to steer your ship when your life depends on it. The gravity of today's category revenue can pull your eyelids shut to the possibility of a different future. Chapter 2. Native Analogs versus Native Digitals Typically, the last company to adopt a new category paradigm is the number one company, in the old category whenever a category king or queen begins to neglect their category aka dismiss the niche category growing quickly before their eyes this leaves them vulnerable to what we like to call category violence the relentless exploitation of the incumbent's voluntary mobility let me say that again category violence is the relentless exploitation of the incumbent's voluntary Immobility. One of the most profound shifts happening in the world today is rooted in an ever escalating debate between generations, young and old. It is a shift happening in plain sight. And just like the timeshare executives staring out the window at Apple's cranes, building the headquarters of the company that would ultimately put them out of business, most people over 35 years old cannot see this shift happening. Instead, they say to themselves, hey, we got nothing to worry about. Well, as category pirates, we feel it is our obligation to sound the alarm when we see rocky shores ahead. Some of us are facing a -a once-in-a-generation set of headwinds that could not just stymie growth, but sink our entire ship. And if those of us over the age of 35 aren't careful this divide could result in one of the greatest instances of category neglect and category violence we've ever witnessed in human history. However, those who see this mega shift and act on it, on the other hand, will sail into the sunset a lot happier pirates, make more money, and make a way bigger difference in the world. Now, come up on deck, pull up a chair, let's have a beverage, We have rum, dark rum, 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 and more rum, and we got whiskey and tequila, too. All right. There are two types of people on planet Earth today. The first are native analogs. These are baby boomers and Gen Xers born anywhere from the 1940s all the way up to the early 80s. Today, they range between the ages of 40 to 75 and up. And make up approximately 136.8 million Americans. 136.8. The second are native digitals. These are millennials and Gen Zers born between the early 1980s to as recently as the 2010s. These demographics are around 35 years of age on the high end today, down to as young as about six years old. And make up, you ready for this? Approximately 140.1 million Americans. So there are more native digitals in the United States of America now than there are native analogs. The difference? Native analogs grew up in a time where technology was an addition, or better yet, a distraction from their quote-unquote real lives Native digitals grow up in a time where their real lives were a distraction from their digital lives. This is a profound shift, and no one seems to be talking about it. Even more stunning, some of the largest native digital brands on the planet are run by native analogs who don't get it either. Which is more real, the sunset or the picture of the sunset? Recently, Pirate Christopher, a native analog, took a few family members, other native analogs, and their kids, native digitals, down to the beach in Santa Cruz, California. Arr, let's watch a sunset, he said. While on the beach, he and the other native analogs did what they have always done. Felt the sand between their toes, enjoyed a beverage or two, had an analog-to-analog conversation, watched the blue sky turn orange. What are the native digitals doing? They did no such thing. They stared at their phones. Only looking up long enough to snag a picture of the sky before spending the rest of the evening tweeting, Instagramming, WhatsApping, TikToking, and all of the above, the picture of the sunset to all of their native digital friends. So which reality is more real? The sunset or the picture of the sunset? The answer, young grasshopper, depends entirely on the lens through which you are experiencing life. If you are a native analog and technology was introduced in an addition to your reality, you see the sunset as your primary reality and the picture of the sunset as your virtual reality. But if you're a native digital and your reality has always been intertwined with technology, then you see the digital experience of your reality as your primary reality and everything else as complementary to it. If you're over the age of 35, the above probably sounds like an excerpt out of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And if you're under the age of 35, the above probably makes complete sense and you're wondering when we're going to stop stating the obvious and get on with it. The paradigm shift, native analog to native digital, Is the storm of all storms, the mother of all headwinds, and possibly the mother of all tailwinds if native analogs woke up? Because we are witnessing a new category of humans emerge for the first time in a long time a digital first generation. However, both native analogs and native digitals are having a hard time understanding how to take advantage of this unique moment in history. Why? Because most baby boomers and Gen Xers have at least a little contempt for millennials and Gen Zers. What, not enough avocado toast for you? And most millennials and Gen Zers have at least a little contempt for baby boomers and Gen Xers. Okay, boomer. Most companies today, including the world's largest digital companies, are run by native analogs. Google CEO Sundar Pichai is 49 years old. Apple CEO Tim Cook is 60 years old. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings is 60 years old. And Netflix co-CEO and chief content officer Ted Sardanos is 56 years old. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy is 53 years old. And Amazon chairman Jeff Bezos is 57 years old. Even Facebook CEO... Mark Zuckerberg is just this side of native analog. He's 37 years old. Post-pandemic, native analog CEOs have made it very clear that from their perspective, they see no reason why employees shouldn't return back to the office. After all, if you're native analog, your physical reality is your primary reality. Tim Cook announced employees would be required to return to the office starting in September 2021. Google the same. Netflix co-CEO Reed Hastings went so far as to call remote work, quote, a pure negative, insisting all employees must return back to the office as soon as COVID vaccinations have been approved and distributed. You can hear contempt in his voice. Possibly the same contempt that ended up causing John Antico to go blind and Blockbuster to go bust. Careful, Netflix. Netflix. Well, returning to the office, physical reality being the primary reality isn't really what native digitals want. Or said more specifically, working in a physical office doesn't make sense to someone whose primary reality is a digital reality. Or to someone like an introvert or a J on the Myers-Briggs or the 71% of workers who believe meetings are a complete waste of time, who is disengaged from work and sees virtual work as a huge work-life balance upgrade. In response to this insistence to return to the office, Apple employees revolted, as did Google's, prompting one of the largest technology companies in the world to backtrack on its policy and adjust to a hybrid work model, where alternating between office work and remote work is allowed. But this is so much more than just a bunch of millennials whining about wanting to work and eat avocado toast in bed. According to a recent study by FlexJobs, 58% of workers said they would absolutely look for a new job if they could not continue remote work in their current role. And according to Bloomberg, employees would rather quit their jobs then return back to the office. What native analog CEOs don't seem to realize is that the category of work is being redesigned right under their noses because the category of human is being redesigned under their noses. And it's gonna have a profound impact on their ability to hire, retain talent, innovate, and ultimately to grow especially when millennials and Gen Zers, native digitals, make up the majority of the workforce. Did you know that right now you have a 62% chance of reporting to a millennial boss? For those of us who are slow in math, that's more than half. But if you think work, massive macro category, is as far as this category neglect and category violence will go, keep reading. This shift from native analog to native digital may impact every category on earth, including one of the largest categories in all of global consumerism, stuff. Demand for analog stuff is falling like a turd from a sailor's ass off the back of a boat. Native digitals, millennials and Gen Zers, don't want stuff. This is a profound sea change if you're in the stuff-making business. Millennials and Gen Z grew up in an era where they watched, at scale, through technology and social media, how their parents' pursuit of stuff didn't really lead to anything meaningful. Dad's desire to move the family into a bigger house, drive a sports car, put up a big screen TV in the basement, didn't make him any happier. Well, maybe the TV did. Mom's desire to buy diamond necklaces, trendy clothes, and have the newest kitchen appliances didn't make her any more fulfilled and when grandpa and grandma passed away and it came time for mom and dad to go through their parents belongings suddenly the same objects they had once spoken so highly of antique lamps silver spoons and ceramic plates were referred to as junk and moved into the garage or the attic This is a big deal considering roughly 30% of U.S. GDP is in the stuff business, durable and non-durable goods. We can see this shift away from valuing stuff to valuing digital products, experiences, and personal transformation everywhere. 74% of Americans now value experiences more than physical products, the vast majority of which are millennials. Virtual Gucci bags are selling for more than physical Gucci bags. Digital goods don't feel like stuff since they're infinitely scalable. NFTs are indicating what's possible in the new category of digital products. Cryptocurrencies are becoming a primary quote-unquote store of value. Every client-server enterprise tech company is making the transition to the cloud. So no matter where you look, you see this transformation for context, 70% of millennials aren't in a financial position to buy a house, even if they wanted to, which means they have nowhere to put their stuff. Younger generations aren't even prioritizing getting their driver's licenses, which means they won't be prioritizing buying cars and millennials would rather travel and have autonomy over their schedule than land a high paying job. Chapter 3 Times Are a Changing. If you're Harley Davidson and you're in the analog motorcycle business, you're in trouble. If you're in Canon and you're in the just a camera business, you're in trouble. If you're Nike and you're not leading in the digital sports products category, sneakers are already a gold mine. Why can't the original sneaker? be a digital copy you carry in your phone. You're in trouble. If you're Costco and you're not relevant in the digital consumer products category, whatever that will mean, you're in trouble. The result of this macro trend happening in plain sight is that if you are 35 years old or younger, you will progressively spend more time, energy, and money enhancing yourself through products, experiences, and transformations in your digital life than you will in your analog life as a matter of fact native digitals when they talk about meeting in person they describe it as meeting in the rl because real life needs to be distinguished from what their default is which is digital life consequently goods as we know them as a percentage of gdp will continue to decline Which means if you're in the 30% of US GDP in the stuff-making business, you should consider the following. One, categories that make stuff need to innovate digital products and services to go along with their physical products. Per the World Bank, the global GDP has shifted from 54% services in 1996 to 65% in 2008. Goods are giving way to services digital products, experiences, and other non-stuff sectors. Apple Care with the iPhone is a great example. IBM moving from physical mainframes and laptops to global software services is another. Specialized transforming bikes into rolling data centers, like Tesla had done with cars, is a third. These companies understand that digital products and services play a much bigger role in long-term customer loyalty than even the products themselves, and the services make up a considerably larger portion of the GDP. In many cases, this opens the door to transform your offering into XYZ as a service. Meal kit companies like HelloFresh are groceries as a service. Furniture rental companies like Furnish are interior design and furniture buying as a service. Our buddy Ray Wang, his new book is called Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And in it, he lays out ideas for home products, think appliances, TVs, etc. as a service that would radically transform major hard goods categories. Number two. Categories slash companies that play in a single part of the value chain need to find ways to become more vertically integrated with the end customer. Said in a different way, the further you are from the, uh, the final customer, the more risk you have in your business model. Selling direct to the consumer is a great way to create experiences that differentiate the stuff that you make. For example, when you buy a Tesla and it magically shows up in your driveway, That is Tesla making the conscious decision to own the final moment of product delivery as opposed to doing what most car manufacturers do, which is sell their cars to third-party dealers and let you spend three hours haggling with them. Whoever decided that was going to be the experience was a dumb person, but I digress. Or when you buy a stock inside Robinhood and your screen explodes in digital confetti, that's Robinhood choosing to own the final moment of product delivery as opposed to doing what most brokerage and financial advisors did in years past, which is say in a monotone voice, all right, Bob, it looks like your order went through. They turn one of the most boring moments in retail trading into a celebration for the user. As a side note, it's not unlike what eBay did. When you buy something on eBay, you didn't buy it. You won it in an auction. Remember, languaging matters. But I digress. Number three, every part of the customer journey needs to be presented with a little theater. Companies should take a page out of Joe Pine's book, The Experience Economy, We think one of the most important business books ever written, and consider how their products can become experiences and how those experiences can lead to transformations for the customer. Why does Apple take its products and package them as if they were delivering in Audemars Puget timepiece? It's theater. Why do Southwest flight attendants sing songs and tell jokes? It's theater. How come buying something on eBay? Through an auction is called winning, not buying or purchasing. It's theater. Companies that feel like more than stuff are businesses that weave theater into every function, including sales, customer service, and support, and any other interaction that touches the customer experience. Theater is the reason Ergo is an $80 million hearing aid business worth $1.5 billion. Their direct to consumer sales team. Made up of trained audiologists help customers post sale in empathetic, engaging, and encouraging ways because they know the theater is an important part of helping consumers come to grips with the fact that they are experiencing hearing loss. Without this theater experience and transformation in the customer, Ergo would be nothing more than a product company that made ear stuff. Four. Reimagine the concept of ownership based on the tailwind and customer desire to rent. Millennials and Gen Zers don't want to buy stuff, but they'll happily rent it. Companies like 1 800 Got Junk have, have been built to incredible success based on the fact that Americans are pack rats and will literally pay someone to show up on command and help them get rid of their stuff. Too much junk was the premise that built eBay in the 1990s and 2000s and is the same reason people are opting to sell their cars or not even bother buying a beater in the first place and just use Uber to get around instead. If you are a native analog and you can take a step back, you may discover your product and your business has even more potential if the customer can rent it instead of own it. And as a side note, if you let them buy it and then rent it out themselves, like Airbnb does, by way of example, that's also a provocative and engaging way to go about capitalizing on this mega tailwind. Five, create a portfolio of in person goods, services, experiences, and virtual goods, services, and experiences. Peloton's portfolio includes a physical bike and a screen connected to an app that guides you through yoga, which has nothing to do with the bike. So is Peloton an analog or a digital company? The answer is yes. Lululemon's acquisition of Mirror is another great example of a portfolio made of goods, clothing, in-person services and experiences, retail stores, and virtual digital services, Mirror. Tesla has done this as well with goods, cars, in-person services, retail stores, contactless delivery, and virtual-slash-digital experiences, gaming, and premium connectivity. Domino's is a lesser-known example, as they've invested heavily in technology to build their portfolio of goods, pizza, in-person services and experiences, delivery, and Virtual slash digital experiences, an app that shows you the progress of the pizza being made, leaving the store, and where it is on the map en route. Doesn't make you want some pizza right now. Pizza is underrated as far as I'm concerned, but I digress. All of this explains why a company like Amazon is investing so heavily in content, recently acquiring MGM for eight point four five billion. It's those virtual digital experiences that keep consumers sticky to prime. Questioning the place where digital and analog could meet in the context of your category is a smart place to park your brain for a while. Let me say that again. Questioning the place where digital and analog could meet in the context of your category is a smart place to park your brain for a while. The big takeaway here is that the economics of digital goods are much greater than physical goods. That's because digital businesses have increasing returns business models. The big aha here is in the analog world, costs are pegged to sales. If Starbucks wants to grow, they need to build more stores, physical buildings. Whereas the cost for eBay to serve 10 customers or 10,000 customers is incremental. That's what makes digital businesses increasing returns businesses. CFOs take note. Digital slash virtual goods tend to have much higher LTV lifetime value because they last forever. A piece of content like friends can be enjoyed by multiple generations. Peloton's tracker of how many total rides you've done is a badge of honor that grows with value over time and makes you want to keep going so you don't lose your streak. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the innovation of the frequent flyer program. Airlines are an in-person service experience during the pandemic, United Delta and American all took out debt backed by their frequent flyer programs and the banks valued the frequent flyer programs almost more than than the respective airline businesses. Wrap your brain around that for a second. Why? Because these programs are fundamentally more profitable and require far few assets to run. In fact, frequent flyer miles might be one of the earliest digital slash virtual experiences, services, and currencies to be created. One last story before we let you go. Let's play out the future where digital goods, services, and experiences become the dominant reality. Chapter 4 De Beers and the Wedding Ring. In 1994, diamond manufacturing company De Beers deployed one of the most successful category designs and culture shifting advertising campaigns of all time with the tagline A Diamond is Forever. This campaign Eventually evolved into commercials in the late 70s where De Beers quite literally defines how much a man in the old days should spend on an engagement ring for their significant other. How else could two months salary last forever? A diamond is forever. To this day, ask a friend how much you should spend on a ring. And they'll say, well, the standard is two months salary. A more legendary job of category value creation the world has never seen, matey. Arr. Prior to this campaign in the 1930s, what most people don't know is diamond rings were not the norm or anywhere near as expected as they are today. In fact, back then, only 10% of first-time brides in the 30s and 40s received diamond engagement rings. By 1990, that number was 80 and between 1939 and 1979 De Beers wholesale diamond sales in the U.S. grew from 23 million to 2.1 billion said differently in a world of native analogs valuing physical stuff De Beers successfully changed the perceived value of a diamond ring to the tune of two billion dollars a year great job But what happens to De Beers in a world that stops valuing stuff like diamond rings, gold watches, and gas-guzzling automobiles? Choosing your life partner is one of the most important decisions a human can make in his or her or their lifetime. Well, in today's day and age, more than a third of people in the United States now meet their spouse or partner through their digital life first. Meanwhile, All the quote-unquote old ways you used to meet a suitable mate in the analog world, through friends, at work, at a bar or restaurant, are falling off a cliff. Today, teenagers and 20-somethings need to do no such things. Your ability to text and get creative with emojis is what determines your success in the dating world. No copulation without digitization. To play out how this macro category trend might play out for a company like De Beers, us pirates decided to play the breakthrough game. And by the way, we have a a newsletter and an ebook on that if you're interested. With the legacy category queen to help them look at the world, and more specifically their business, through the lens of a native digital. Dear De Beers executives, here's some advice we know you won't take. After much wipes mouth of rum, surveying the market, we have come to pick up a few conclusions. The next generation doesn't want your rings. Diamond rings are too expensive, easy to lose, and at a risk of being stolen. Diamond rings can break, rust, they're small, and so even if you take it off your finger for just a second, you'll probably lose it. And diamond rings actually don't last forever after a generation or two that ring that used to belong to great grandma doesn't have any more sentimental value. In fact, a physical diamond ring is more annoying than it is valuable and more of a liability than an asset. So here's what we propose you do. You've already doubled down on lab grown synthetic diamonds, holds up a pint of rum. Terrific job mateys. Now, now, Can we assume other diamond manufacturers will soon follow suit? Which means in order to remain category king, you must define new rules of the new game. Many will produce synthetic diamonds, but you have the opportunity to create authentic synthetic diamonds. New category. Stay with us. This is step one. Step two is to treat the digital version of the ring as the primary product and the physical version of the ring as the secondary analog products that will survive in the future. will have digital versions that stand as the quote unquote original. We might be wrong about this, but what if we're right? Okay. Stay with us. This means the real thing is the digital thing and the physical thing is the copy. Who cares if you lose your engagement ring? You might just hiccup, 3D print another and have the customer pay a modest replacement fee or even better, waive the replacement fee. Let them lose as many engagement rings as they want, but charge them $9.99 per month to hold the authentic digital version inside their phone. And then let them upgrade to the $14.99 per month program to hold their husband's digital ring Or wives' digital ring as well. And then there's the $29.99 version to upload photo albums of historic family moments to embed in the digital DNA of the ring. You want to really make a diamond last forever? Store it in the cloud. Oh, wipes mouth of more rum? And while we're on the subject, the reason anyone wants a diamond is sentimental value. And the greatest risk of owning a diamond is destruction. Digital solves for both. Through this lens, an engagement ring is not an engagement ring. It's a time capsule. It's your entire relationship, moments, experiences, transformations in the form of photos and videos and sound clips and GPS tracking of your travels around the world saved inside your phone. After all, Getting married is one of the most transformative experiences available to humans. You have the ability to represent that transformation digitally. De Beers, we're telling you do this successfully through a native digital lens, and you'll become Tesla on your finger. Don't, through a native analog lens, and you become that old antique piece of jewelry. Your granddaughter will one day call a piece of junk. Our category pirates. Thanks for hanging out on the Category Pirate ship with us. We have an extensive series of many books for you to check out uh, on Amazon.com. And if you want to go deep with us, subscribe to Category Pirates at CategoryPirates.com. We look forward to seeing you on board again soon, and we wish you legendary sailing on your voyage to create and design legendary new categories. Our category pirates.